Ave Podcast listeners, a quick notice before we get started with today's podcast. We are crowdfunding a podcast mini-series on the life and career of the Roman general Agricola. It's five episodes long, will be available to supporters only, and you can find that now on Kickstarter. There will be a link in episode show notes and also on our social media channels. Crowdfunding finishes in about 10 days' time, and we have a special announcement. The introductions of our episodes will be performed by the actor Ian McNeese, who played the newsreader in HBO's Rome. So please give your support. I'm very much looking forward to hearing it myself. And now, here's the podcast. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Kaylin Davenport, head of the Centre for Classical Studies at the Australian National University. This is episode CLXXXIX, Nero and the Great Fire of Rome. On the night of the 18th of July, 64 CE, a fire broke out in the Circus Maximus at Rome. It raged for nine days, destroying or damaging 10 of the city's 14 regions. Was this fire just an accident? Or was it deliberately lit? either by dissident Christians or by Emperor Nero himself, who allegedly sang while Rome burned. This podcast was recorded on 12th of April 2022 in front of a live audience at the Australian National University in Canberra. Here's Caelan Davenport. Okay, so we're here tonight to uh, discuss the Great Fire of Rome, which is attributed to Nero, many great fires as we're soon going to find out. So, Kaylin, if you can please start by setting the scene for us. Uh, what is the context for the Great Fire of Rome? Take us back to that vague night in uh, July 64 CE. What was Rome like? Yes, so um, we're about 10 years into uh, Nero's reign, uh, Matt, and uh, he succeeded his stepfather, uh, the Emperor Claudius, who uh, many of you uh, might remember uh, from uh, the BBC TV series uh, I, Claudius, reputedly uh, poisoned um, by Agrippina, um, who was um, his wife and the mother of of Nero. So Nero came to the throne when he was only uh, 15, 15 years old now he's 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 26 he's had a rocky road uh, things started off well but uh, by this point in time 64 possibly um on a, on a downward spiral there have been many fires in rome before um so this certainly isn't uh, the first fire of rome um, but what makes it so remarkable um, is the fact that it affected um, 10 of the city's 14 regions. Um, so most other fires um, stayed within in one region. Um, this is remarkable for um, the, the extent um, of uh, the devastation. And indeed, um, altars which were set up um, to the god uh, Vulcan, uh, the god of fire and the forge um, in the reign of Domitian uh, some 30 years later uh, commemorated, and I quote directly here, when the city burned for nine days during Neronian times. Mm. Uh, so this was something um, that immediately caught on within the Roman imagination um, as 
a terribly destructive fire and was then um, commemorated um, and rites were performed in honour of Vulcan so that such an event would not happen again. Right, so this was an event that was closely associated with Nero not too long after his reign and essentially coloured quite a lot of his reign when the people of Rome thought about it. So uh, before that, what was his reputation like uh, in antiquity during that time? Well, uh, his accession was um, uh, greeted uh, with uh, uh, great joy. Uh, there's a strong association between um, a child or, or, or teenage emperor um, and hope, spares, so hope for the future um, because there's a lot of potential there. Um, and certainly um, uh, Claudius had not necessarily been um, uh, the benevolent uh, despot that we see in, in Derek Jacobi's uh, portrayal um, in I, Claudius. So so um, he's renowned for um, executing some 35 senators and uh, 300 members of the equestrian order, uh, which you don't often hear talked about. You know, those are figures you might associate more with um, Caligula. Mm. Um, he was known to be a good administrator, um, but certainly towards the, the last years and at Claudius's court, um, there, were, there were problems um, and resentment. So Nero is greeted as the dawn um, of, a, of a new age, um, and, and certainly he had good people to guide him um, uh, initially. So um, his mother, um, Agrippina, his tutor, uh, Seneca the Younger, um, who was uh, famous for writing uh, some of his early speeches, um, his wife, um, Octavia, um, who was um, uh, Claudius's daughter, and also the Praetorian prefect, um, Afranius Burrus. So there's a tradition that the early years of Nero's reign uh, was a period of good government. And indeed, the Emperor Trajan, who ruled in the second century, is supposed to have referred to this period as the Quinquennium Neronus. So it's five years of Nero, good government, which many emperors um, didn't have. However, by the time of the fire um, in 64, um, everything had really started to change. Um, so... Um, Agrippina um, had died um, in 59, or more accurately, um, murdered uh, by uh, Nero, um, who said that she had been executed for her role in a conspiracy. Um, in reality, he designed a collapsible boat for her to take sail on, um, and when it collapsed at sea, um, she managed to, to, to swim to shore, um, so then he had to um, uh, have her killed. Um, so she's out of the picture. Uh, Seneca is exiled. Um, Afranius Burrus um, and the finance minister Pallas had both died, rumoured to be poisoned um, on, on Nero's orders. Um, and in 62, his wife um, was, um, he divorced her first on the grounds that she couldn't bear children. Um, and then secondly, on the grounds of uh, conspiracy uh, with the, the, free, the fleet prefect. Mm. Um, and that was something that um, caused great popular discontent um, because Octavia had been um, the daughter of Claudius um, and there were, there were popular protests. People ascended the Capitoline Hill um, brandishing her images um, because uh, she was uh, so popular. Okay, so he gets rid of all those people around him and that's uh, him kind of establishing himself as, you know, sole ruler. I know he didn't share his rule, but he's mm. very much independent now. 
and he's also kind of got the, the reputation at this point of being a bit of a, a showman, doesn't mm. he? He's uh, not uh, not embarrassed to flaunt his uh, his interests around Rome. Uh, not at all. I'm just like you, Matt. Oh, he's, very... <laughs> he's, he's, he's a bit of a performer. <laughs> a bit of a performer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, which is, you know, a great if you're an actor, um, but not necessarily good if you're an emperor. Uh, because emperors are supposed to sit back. They're supposed to enjoy shows, um, like um, A Man of the People. Um, it's the quality of being um, coolous or, or, or citizen-like. Um but actors in Rome, uh, you know, were very much the lowest of the low, uh, which is, you know, quite a contrast uh, uh, with today. Mm. Um, so um, Nero, um, from an early age, um, uh, his biographer, Suetonius, who we'll hear more about in a moment, uh, tells us that, you know, he'd pra- do practice exercises um, for his, his breathing um, and his singing um, and delighted um, in music. Um, so um, he starts to make himself the centre of competitions. So particularly there's the Uinalia, uh, the youth games, um, and during this um, he cuts off... Oh, he, he has... He, I mean, he's, he's 22 by this stage, so it can't be his first beard, um, but he, he dedicates the shavings, theoretically, of his first beard um, to Capitoline Jove. Um, and then he holds a competition called the, the Neronia, um, which is a Greek-style competition um, in which there's um, contests of um, oratory, public speaking, recitation, um, singing and music. Um, there's um, athletic contests, and there's also um, chariot racing as well. Mm. Um, and um, Nero, you know, goes further um, than an emperor should do by participating in these. Um, and what happens throughout his life is basically he wins all the prizes um, <laughs> because, you know, how could you how could you refuse uh, the emperor um, the honor um, of winning? Um, and he he backed this up by recruiting firstly young men of the equestrian order. So this is the the second highest um, social order uh, behind. Uh, the senators um, as like his um, his professional sort of um, applause group mm. um, you know you go around and applaud in his performances and then he goes further by putting together um, a band of 5,000 young men um, who are going to sit in the theatre um, um, applauding him um, and apparently um, there are special uh, clapping techniques which they learn uh, which come from um, Egypt uh, uh, in order order uh, to um, um, so give it, the best effect possible. Egypt so. invented the slow clap. Well, I don't know. <laughs> there were ones such as, you know, like, like the, the, the root, uh, rain on the roof and things like that. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. A, a I don't know how Suetonius would have written... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a bit hard to come across in the ancient texts. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, he wants to be, you know, the centre of attention. Mm. Um, so, by the times AD sixty four, you know, there's been a reconfiguration of his court, um, and he's very much front and centre, not only as an emperor but also um, as a performer as well. Mm. Completely tangentially, and this is the sort of thing that I usually edit out of a podcast. That, um, the very first time that uh, poetry was an Olympic sport, mm. look it up. Um, one of the guys, the guy who won it, was one of the Olympics organizers for that year. So, oh, okay. sounds there a little bit go. familiar. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> touched Neronian about him. Absolutely. So, 
uh, as we've uh, put, said at the start, this wasn't the first fire of Rome. Uh, mm. Wasn't the first fire that the Roma has seen. How flammable was the city? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like most pre-modern cities are, uh, are highly, highly flammable. Um, and this was uh, partly um, because of, you know, technology and also the way the, the city um, was built. Um, uh, built up over centuries um, with not so much regard for urban planning as we would have um, today. Nero tried to change that after the fire, which is something that, that, that's worth noting. Uh, um, noting. So in our ancient sources, um, there's a consistent record of fires. Um, the first one which looms large in our literary sources um, is the fire after the sack of Rome uh, by the Gauls um, in 390 BC. Um, so we know uh, most about this um, thanks to Livy, who of course is writing August under Augustus hundreds of years uh, later. Um, but when the Gauls um, attack Rome, um, some many people uh, flee to the nearby city of Vei. Um, others, particularly soldiers, take refuge um, on uh, the Capitoline Hill there. Um, and uh, when uh, the Gauls come into the city, um, legend has it that they're, um, uh, they're warned by the geese that are sacred to Judo Mineta that start squawking um, and, and wake them up. Um, and then they defend um, Rome uh, from the citadel, but they look out and they see, allegedly, the whole city ablaze um, around them. The Romans have guard geese. Yes, they're the, they're the sacred geese. So a Juno uh, Mineta, um, we think, comes from uh, the Latin verb moneo, I warn. Um, and we're not quite sure about why geese are associated with Juno. Um, there is A peacock is normally her sacred animal. Mm. Um, but yes, yes, they're, they're woken up by uh, Juno's sacred geese. This is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a important uh, Roman legend yeah. there. Okay. Um, now, this was, of course, a fire caused by an enemy attack, um, and most fires um, either broke out spontaneously um, or the Romans thought, firstly, it must be a portent um, from the gods, so it must signify something, it must signify a change, um, or it's arson, someone's to blame. Mm. Uh, so they didn't usually think, well, you know, we have a crowded city, um, you know, there's timber, um, there's mud brick buildings, um, you know, there's open open flames, there's cook shops, there's, um, you know, tanneries, there's blacksmiths uh, through the city. They didn't associate it like that. They thought, you know, someone must be blamed or it's a sign from the gods. So... That's quite interesting from the way in which we think about uh, uh, fires today um, mm. in, in pre-modern cities. So in the time of Augustus, we think Rome had about between 800,000 to um, a million inhabitants. Um, that's, that's the best uh, scholarly uh, guesstimate. Um, it, it's more often uh, repeated uh, rather than proved. Um, and uh, some scholars have calculated the population density of between 45,000 to 65,000 people per 
square kilometer, uh, which is incredibly high. They're um, fairly packed in, yeah. 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 Um, and this is because of the um, the apartment blocks, the insulae, um, the islands, uh, essentially, um, in Latin, which become a major feature of Rome from the late Republic. Um, now, they're probably about four to five uh, stories high. Again, this is a subject of great scholarly <laughs> controversy. Um, but certainly um, down the bottom, you know, if you've been to somewhere like Pompeii or Herculaneum or Ostia, uh, you'll see there'll be, uh, there'll be shops, um, there'll be bars, taverns, um, there'll be uh, workplaces, and then people would generally leave, uh, live, live above. Mm. Um, they're very much closely packed in. Um, Marshall, um, who is a great um, uh, poet, uh, a great satirist, uh, talks about people being able to shake hands outside windows. So either from one, one apartment to another or even possibly um, across the street, uh, which sort of gives you a sense of how closely packed in people were. That's very tame for Marshall. Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> you and Rianne can do the, uh, the other episodes. Um the other thing is sort of the building materials, so that there were some, there were some codes, um, but they're not like uh, what we have today. Mm. So a lot of the evidence comes from uh, Vitruvius, um, who was. Um, a writer and architecture of the Augustan period. Um, and he says that walls joining roads had to be a maximum of 1.5 um, feet uh, thick, um, so uh, probably not more than one brick uh, thick. And so in order to build upwards to hold these insulae, uh, there would need to be uh, central pillars constructed um, to bear um, the weight. And because of this, we, we think they can't have been more than four to five uh, stories high. So we're not thinking like skyscrapers today, although that analogy is, 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 is often used. Um, Augustus tries to limit the height of buildings to about 70 Roman feet, which is about 20 metres um, in, um, in our type of measurement. Okay, so there's, there's some consideration of, of city planning there, but that, that's not the only thing that Augustus did. He also uh, tried to institute some sort of fire service in a very basic kind of thing of, you know, you are the people who look after the welfare of the city, including fires. Yeah, so there was a tradition that, so you sort of have the ideals, which are the, the senatorial magistrates are responsible for the upkeep of the city. Um, and... There were groups of slaves um, that uh, served under them, um, as well as private slaves um, that were sent out to sort of fire, fire keeping uh, uh, forces um, in ancient Rome. Uh, but certainly in the Augustan period, you know, we witness um, a centralization um, of uh, the firefighting. Um, uh, apparatus of Rome with the creation of the um, of the Wigiles, so of, of the watchmen, um, and you know they're going to be um, equipped, uh, and we know this thanks to a passage in the um, uh, the uh, the legal text known as the Digest, uh, which consists of uh, legal rulings which were compiled by Justinian, um, and they had. Uh, mats, they had sponges, they had ladders, um, they had uh, poles, um, and they had vinegar. 
um, and they would often soak the mats in vinegar, and there were also um, pumps as well, um, which they could use to get uh, water uh, from the um, from the water system. Um, and Augustus, one of the reasons Augustus set this up is that early in his reign, one of the idols was becoming too popular um, by getting together his own slaves to um, uh, put out um, the fires, and he was going to use that to run for consul. Um, and Augustus, by then, you know, who was the first man in Rome and wanted to keep it that way, mm. uh, wanted to make sure that he was remembered uh, for um, uh, a public service, uh, putting out the fires. Okay, so uh, when we talk about the Great Fire in Rome, then if we can bring it forward to, to that event, mm. what sources are we dealing with here? Uh, you've you've said that we've got uh, Suetonius as mm. one of the main sources, and I guess um, the the tomes of Tacitus, which you mm. uh, very graciously found for us in your escapades. Me, wasn't yeah, it? Yes. <laughs> appreciate that. So, uh, what sort of sources are we dealing with here? Yeah, so Tacitus is actually our best source. So um, Mrs. Tacitus's Annals, um, which is his last work, um, probably written uh, towards the end of Trajan's reign in the sec early 2nd century AD. Um, and this uh, covered uh, Roman history from the death of Augustus in AD 14 to the, de the death of Nero um, in um, AD um, 68. Um, and not all of it survives, but fortunately, uh, Book 15, uh, which records uh, the fire, um, mm. uh, is preserved. And it's a fantastic um, literary narrative. You don't just read it as a work of history. You also enjoy the, the artistry um, of, of Tacitus's prose. Now, he has the most extensive account, um, which um, goes over, over several chapters in Book 15. Um, you know, and he situates it within the larger... Um, what he uh, places the large degeneracy of Nero's rule. Uh, Suetonius really only has one chapter in the life of Nero, um, so it's much uh, less developed account. So Suetonius is a biographer um, writing under Hadrian, a little bit later than Tacitus, um, but he structures um, his account according to themes. So there isn't the same sort of um, attention to chronology uh, like Tacitus. Um, the other major account is by Cassius Dio, who wrote in Greek um, in the 3rd century AD, um, and uh, his account uh, is much, um, it's not as detailed as Tacitus, um, but it's, it's better than Suetonius, and he probably used the same sources as Tacitus. He didn't necessarily rely on Tacitus himself. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about this later on to some extent, but there, uh, you can if you know where to look, get closer to contemporary sources when you're talking about this event? Yeah, so th this is one of the major problems um, that, of course, you know, if Tacitus is writing in the second decade of the second century AD, uh, we're still talking about 60 years um, after the events. Mm. Um, so we know um, that um, he talks about... Um, oral sources of people he would have talked to. Um, he used now lost earlier histories, such as those by Cluvius Rufus and uh, Fabius Rusticus. Um, but he's writing 60 years later um, with, a, with a distance, and we know what happens to Nero uh, by that time. Uh, so we'll talk at the end of, of ways we can perhaps get a bit closer uh, to what contemporaries uh, thought of, of Nero um, and whether he was responsible for the fire. Mm. So, so how do we think this fire started, or how, how are we told that this fire is started? 
Yes, so uh, Tacitus uh, tells us um, it begins um, in the eastern end of the Circus Maximus, um, and that is the magnificent uh, chariot uh, racing arena um, in the centre of Rome. If you go to Rome today, it's a, a big open uh, green space directly uh below the, the Palatine Hill, um, and it's actually only the, the eastern end where there's um, some remains there uh, still as, as well. Um, and Tacitus tells us that it uh, broke out uh, probably on the night of the, the 18th, uh, 19th of, of, of July, so across that, uh, that night. Um, and he says, and I, and I quote here um, from Annals, Book 15, Chapter 38, there, amid shops containing merchandise of a combustible nature, the fire immediately gained strength as soon as it broke out and, whipped up by the wind, engulfed the entire length of the circus. So, a couple of interesting things here. Firstly, fires had broken out in the Circus Maximus regularly before. Mm. So this isn't an unknown circumstance. Certainly in Tiberius's reign and Augustus's reign, this has happened before. Uh, secondly, uh, we have uh, the taberni, what's translated um, as shops. Um, so they would be um, perhaps uh, cook shops, popini, uh, but also um, um, bakeries, uh, for example, as well. Um, and we're told that a previous fire under Tiberius began um, in the shops of uh, basket makers. Uh, so again, very flammable uh, material there. The other point which is interesting is the top two layers of the Circus Maximus were wooden seating. So of course, if we're thinking the fire spreading along the whole length of the Circus, that happens very, very quickly. Now Tacitus goes on to say, and I quote again, the fire spread wildly, overrunning the flat areas first and then climbing to the heights before once again ravaging the lower sections. Now, this is quite quite vague, um, but what we think he's getting at the here is that the fire um, is spreading um, over some of the very famous seven hills of Rome um, and then down again. So we know that, so the Circus Maximus uh, is directly adjacent uh, to the Palatine, uh, which we now remember um, as where uh, the palace um, has been built. Um, but there were also other elite residences there, certainly in the first century um, AD. And Pliny the Elder, who wrote the natural history um, and is a contemporary of these events, says that the European nettle trees, <laughs> which were in the house of the Seneca Caecina Largus, were destroyed or severely damaged in the fire. So we know from that reference that it certainly went up to the Palatine, as we'd expect. Uh, but also it probably went over the Caelian Hill, uh, which is adjacent uh, to the Palatine, um, and it's where uh, the temple to the deified Claudius, Nero's father, um, stood. And so... Tacitus continues that the fire spread, and I quote, through the narrow streets, twisting this way and that, which indicates we're moving from you know, the grand palatial aristocratic residences um, to where the insulae, the apartment buildings are located. Mm. And this probably means it spreads 
over the Kylian Hill into the Sabora, which is the heart of the insulae, the apartment complexes. Um, if any of you have seen um, HBO's Rome, uh, they bring that area um, of Rome uh, to life uh, wonderfully there. So it's uh, it's causing a lot of uh, unspecified damage, I think is the best way to describe yes. how Tacitus uh, puts it here. Um, and, and Pliny, although in typical Pliny form, he is much more interested in the European nettle trees. Uh, but to the people of Rome itself, this is a big deal. Uh, we get some accounts of what they go through. But uh, strangely enough, for, for this kind of event, and you know, Tacitus is mm. quite big on giving us numbers of soldiers that go into battle and mm. people who die in battle and those sort of things, we don't get those sort of details here, as in we don't know how many people are affected by this fire at all. No, so there are no casualty figures, uh, for example. Um, what's really interesting with Tacitus' narrative is the way he constructs it, that it is firstly the buildings and then the people. Mm. And he says... At the beginning, um, that it's a clades, that it's a um, uh, it's a disaster, and this is a word very often used for military disasters. So uh, when Varus loses his three eagles um, at the Battle of the Teutoburg uh, Forest, that's the clades veriana. Uh, so this also he says is a disaster, and so uh, scholars looking at his language um, have emphasised how he sort of uh, recreates um, narratives um, of um, despair um, uh, in, in wartime. So he says, um, and again, this is chapter uh, 38, there was the wailing of panic-stricken women. There were people very old and very young. There were those trying to save themselves and those trying to save others, dragging invalids along or waiting for them. And these people, some hanging back, some rushing along, hindered all relief efforts. Now, again, no, he wasn't there, but I think he captures um, the sense um, of panic, of terror, and uncertainty mm. um, that, that people uh, would have felt there. Now, Cassius Dio, um, who I said is writing the third century, probably relying on the, the same sources, um, has a, an equally vivid um, account of what's happening. And he says, and this is book 62, chapter 16, people were totally perplexed, unable to find out how the calamity started or how to end it, though they did observe and hear many strange things. There was nothing to be seen other than a lot of fires, as in a military camp, and nothing to be heard in people's conversations except such and such as on fire. Where? How? Who started it? And help! There are also stories of, of, of looting as soldiers tried to s step in and stop this, perhaps the members of the uh, Wigglays, um, while others were trying to stop the efforts to put it out in the hope that uh, more things would be destroyed, uh, that they could loot. Now, as I said, you know, these are, are literary narratives. Um, I think they, they reconstruct the sense of panic very well. But one other interesting point is the emphasis on perplexity, on the need for explanation as, as to why this happened. You know, who was responsible? How did it start? 
Mm. Uh, so as I said, you know, very often in Roman history, they would look for the person responsible. So in Augustus's time, when a fire breaks out in the forum, they think it's people who are in debt because they're trying to destroy records of debts. At other times, they think um, it's a portent. So when the fire breaks out before the Battle of Actium, they think it's, you know, a sign from the gods about what's going to happen. So people are searching for answers. So even if this isn't historical, I think his Cassius Dio's narrative provides a good understanding of an environment in which rumours could flourish. Because rumours flourish when there is not good information about what's happening in times of tension, um, and people come up with their own explanations for what is happening. Mm. Well, one of the, the popular explanations, if I can uh, take us in, in this direction, is that Nero is the one who set the fire and uh, definitely benefited from its uh, uh, purging of Rome, if I can call it that. So what was he doing du during all of this time when this fire was going through Rome? Yes, yeah, so, so he isn't there. Um, he's been um, in Naples, uh, first of all, and Tacitus has a wonderful account um, of uh, his uh, performances in Naples. Um, and then he goes northwards to Antium, which is a coastal resort uh, just to the south of Rome. Um, it's about uh, 63 kilometres away uh, mm. from Rome. And Tacitus says he doesn't leave until he heard that the fire was threatening the Domus Transitoria. Now, this is one of Nero's own residences, uh, which connects the Palatine with the gardens of Mycenaeus on the Esquiline. So um, it runs uh, through where the Colosseum is uh, now today. Uh, and the gardens of Mycenaeus, Mycenaeus was um, Augustus's, you know, a great friend, great patron of the arts, you know, extravagantly wealthy. Um, and now the estates were in imperial hands. Okay. Yeah. So his house was, was in danger. Yes. <laughs> Yes, e exactly. That's what that's what uh, Tacitus says. Uh, now, I've done some calculations. Well, actually, it's it's, it's not me. Um, there's a great website called the uh, the Stanford um, Orbis Project. So you can calculate how long it would take to travel places uh, in the Roman world. Um, so it'd probably take at least a day to travel from Antium uh, uh, to Rome once he'd he'd, he'd um, received the news. And this is quite interesting because Tacitus doesn't provide us with an exact account of the chronology and how long it takes uh, Nero to get there. Mm. But when he does get there, Tacitus says that Nero threw himself into helping Romans affected by the fire. And this is in Annals uh, Book 15, Chapter 39. And Tacitus says, and I quote, To relieve the homeless and fugitive populations, Nero opened up the Campus Martians, the monuments of Agrippa, and even his own gardens, and he erected makeshift buildings to house the destitute crowds. Vital supplies were shipped up from Austria and neighbouring municipalities, and the price of grain was dropped to three sesterci. So when he did reach Rome, you know, the fire's still raging, um, because we're told it went for nine days uh, in total, um, but he is trying to fill the role of a good emperor and providing for those people that are uh, affected. And the fact that he's using the Campus Martius, so that's where uh, monuments such as the Pantheon are, um, uh, built by uh, Marcus Agrippa, uh, or where there were bars of Agrippa, um, etc., that that was relatively unscathed. Okay. Uh, was not affected by the fire. All right. Look, points in Nero's direction at this point. So, <laughs> if if he's doing that, he's you know he's dropping the price of grain. He's helping out the refugees, and uh, he's trying to manage things to some extent because this fire does go on for a little while. 
Where do we get the story of Nero fiddling while Rome burns? Yes. Because <laughs> that's always an associated image with this event. Exactly, exactly. So, Can I blame Shakespeare? Uh, no. <laughs> Can I just blame him anyway? <laughs> so it's, Tacitus says that these relief efforts are directly undermined um, by a rumour. Um, and this is in 1539, that at the very time the city was ablaze, Nero had appeared on his private stage and sung about the destruction of Troy, drawing a comparison between the sorrows of the present and the disasters of the old. So the destruction of Troy, this is something uh, which is uh, brought to life by Virgil in Book 2 of the Aeneid, which of course is the story of how the Trojan prince Aeneas leaves Troy to come and uh, found uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Roman race. So Tacitus says he places it, uh, so this occurred on his private stage. So where is that? We don't know. The story also appears in Suetonius and Cassius Dio, Suetonius says it occurred in the Tower of Mycenas in the gardens on the Esquiline. Cassius Dio said it was at the top of the palace. But Tassius, uh, Dio also says that he changed into his lyre player's costume. So uh, the costume of a Kithoroidus, a lyre player. Mm. So we have singing and we have the costume of a lyre player, um, but uh, there's there's no fiddling. We also have rumour. It says, we do have rumor. Yes, it no, says exactly. here that this is a rumour. Exactly. And if I was back in ancient Rome days and a fire breaks out in the city, I would be helping to put it out, but the whole time I would be singing Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire in my head. <laughs> okay. I'd be helpful, <laughs> but at the same time... I'm there for the entertainment value as well, yes. people of Rome. Yes, well, yeah, th- th- this was a rumour. and uh, Just saying Team Nero so far. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, exactly right. It, it's a rumour. It, it comes from the atmosphere of panic and uncertainty and people wanting explanation as, as to what happens. Rumours emerge from people's preconceptions and beliefs. They might seem wild to us, but... They do come from what people actually believe. So we do have Nero the showman. Mm. Um, he's not in Rome. You know, what does he do when he gets there? Of course, he performs. So this is in all three of our uh, main accounts. Uh, but as you alluded to um, earlier, Emmy does have um, a famous afterlife. Um, in Shakespeare's uh, Henry VI, um, we have a line um, where uh, Talbot says um, that he will, like the Nero, play on the lute, beholding the town's burn. However, um, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, um, but that is apparently an 18th century textual emendation, um, and the original does not um, have Nero in it. Really? So... If there are any Shakespeare scholars in the room, you can uh, bring this up as well. Um, but that's what I've, I've discovered. Um, the reference to fiddling while Rome burns, so the historian uh, Anthony Barrett has tracked it down to the 17th century. Um, and it appears um, in Parliament where the English MP, um, Silius Titus, 
He urges Parliament not to be distracted by a minor problem in Tangier when there was a possibility that Charles II, who's the monarch at the time, could be succeeded by his Catholic brother James as king. And he stood up in Parliament and said that if they were fixated on this minor issue, we may be reflected on, as Nero was, for playing on his fiddle while Rome was burning. So that's what Barrett has traced, the earliest example specifically of fiddling while Rome burns. Mm. And he's also looked at the use of fiddle uh, in English. Um, and we might think, you know, it's used for playing on a violin. Yeah, um, yeah. But you could actually use that for any stringed instrument. So Nero could actually fiddle on his lyre um, in, in, in the parlance um, of the time. Okay. So if Cassius Dio says, you know, he's wearing his lyre player's costume, uh, then you know, a leap is made that, you know, not only is he singing, but he's playing the lyre. Um, and, you know, in the 16th, 17th century, they're using uh, fiddle for playing on any stringed instrument. It's interesting that you can uh, you can take what Tacitus has written and then what Shakespeare wrote but didn't write, <laughs> and later on what an English MP, which you went past his name there, Silius Titus. That's right. You, yes. you, you said it, but English MP, a noted time traveller by the sound of it, with a first-hand account there, Silius <laughs> Titus. <laughs> Jeez, that's that's somebody who's been born with it, some sort of silver spoon in his mouth, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And you can get all the way from those to. Uh, Nero fiddling. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, how long did the the fire in Rome last for? It was quite an event. If um, if Nero can assess what damage is being done, mm. then when it's in interest to him, spend mm. a day travelling and still take part in uh, in the recovery that's going on there while the fire is still going. By the sounds of it. Exactly. Um, so we have that inscription from the time of Domitian's reign, which says nine days. Um, We're told by Tacitus that the fire is brought to a stop on day six at the base of the Esquiline Hill. Now, that's where the, the gardens of Mycenaeus were. So there was a aristocratic um, uh, villas on the top, but around the edges there were these apartment buildings. And Tacitus says uh, that a fire break was made by demolishing uh, buildings there. But then it restarted, and it restarted on a property owned by the emperor's Praetorian prefect, uh, Alphonius Tigellinus. Now, this isn't as suspicious as it might seem, because apparently his property was in the Emiliana district in the southern campus Martius, uh, where fires had previously broken out in 38 and 52. But the fact that it restarted on the property um, of the Praetorian prefect led people to suspect that perhaps Nero was behind it, and it raged for another three days before dying out. Hmm. The only four districts which escaped damage uh, were the um, was the region across the Tiber, so modern-day uh, Trastevere, where you can go and have a, a nice pizza in the evenings today, um, the Porta Capena, which is far west of the Kylian Hill, and then two regions to the north, the Alta Semita and the Via Lata. And so immediately people began to compare the disaster to the fire which started after uh, the Gallic sack in 390 BC, um, which happened on July the 19th. Um, and since the fire under Nero broke out 
the night of the 18th and 19th, people began to make the connection with that great disaster when Rome was actually sacked by a foreign enemy. And this is something that Tacitus really plays on in his account, um, that it's like Nero possibly attacking his own city. Mm. Even though Tacitus is you know, a more agnostic than Suetonius and Cassius Dio, so they both say Nero did it, um, Tacitus is equivocal and said it could either be by chance um, or a ploy um, of, of Nero. Um, but he, he certainly uh, builds up a narrative that that shows that uh, Nero not only is a destroyer, but also as, as a rebuilder of Rome. So this is going uh, all the way to give Nero a, a bad reputation. And he's got to be aware of these kind of things that are being attributed to him at the time so what is his reaction uh his first impression seems to be you know find a scapegoat Mm, mm. so this is where the famous story of nero and the christians um comes in um so tacitus in book 15 chapter 44 writes that in order to put a stop to the rumor that he was himself responsible nero blamed the crestiani as the manuscript says. Um, so very often Christiani um, is used rather than Christiani um, at, at, the, at this time. Yeah. Now, there are many problems with Tacitus's narrative, and this is it's vexed scholars, because although Nero is remembered as a persecutor in the Christian tradition, the idea that he blamed the Christians for the fire of Rome doesn't appear in other early Christian historians such as Lactantius or Eusebius writing in the, the 4th century AD. Um, so it's not repeated again after Tacitus until Sulpicius Severus who's writing in the late 4th century there. I'm, I'm quietly, I'm not quietly, I'm holding a microphone, impressed that he managed to find some Christians to blame the fire on. Yeah, I mean, we don't know how many Christians were in Rome at the time. Yeah. Tacitus says, and I quote directly, a huge number were found guilty. Um, but how big was the Christian community um, in Rome at the time? And so some scholars have doubted uh, whether this event is historic at all. And some um, scholars have doubted whether Tacitus even wrote this passage and it was put in later. Um, Recent analysis has shown that the style is Tacitian, um, but scholars have thought perhaps that um, um, Tacitus put in a story circulating at his own time rather uh, than in the first century AD. Okay, so the result of this fire is that you've got... um, quite a lot of Rome not only depopulated mm. but cleared it's it sounds mm. like you know this is this is a real estate opportunity yes yes yeah <laughs> it's a buyer's yes. market <laughs> yes yeah and, and and indeed you know um uh going back to the days of the late republic you know the great um uh, famous general and multimillionaire Marcus Licinius Crassus um was said to have his own sort of private um gang of slaves who who would rush in and put out fires and buy up the demolished property um so that he could build um and make a profit by building I know his own apartment blocks um so that's uh, like a man who set a fire or two really. yes, yeah. uh, very suspicious these roman uh, millionaires um so yes i mean 
Tass sort of says that um, Nero rebuilds Rome. You know, um, this is from Book 15, Chapter 43. There are rows of streets properly surveyed, spacious thoroughfares, buildings with height limits and open areas. Porticos had been added to to perfect, protect the facade of the apartments. Now, of course, this is, you know, what an emperor should do. However, he also used the occasion to commence construction of the Domus Aurea, um, his golden house, his new palace, where he said he could at last begin to live like a human being. And this palace was to <laughs> encompass the Palatine, the valley which is now occupied by the Colosseum, and then up into the Esquiline Hill as well, where the bars of Trajan are. And if you go to Rome today, the part of the Domus Array you can go into um, is there on the Esquiline. So you can go there and you can see the octagonal dining room and the magnificent um, uh, frescoes which still survive there. There was to be a vestibule with the, a colossal statue of Nero, um, 120 Roman feet high, a lake, that's where the Colosseum is now today, and a dining room with a revolving, revolving ceiling which would allow flowers to rain down on guests uh, while they were dining. And archaeologists we think have discovered this dining room, uh, which is on the Palatine, um, because um, it features a central column, uh, which you know you can have uh, spokes coming out for so for a revolving apparatus. Wow! Um, so we think that is that is true. That's uh, that's good when the archaeology can match up with what they've got in the sources. It's um, I, I can't get over the uh, the how opportunistic he was in building this. Um, part of me wants to think that he just did it because the land was cleared, mm. but he's taken what is public space and making it very much private. Mm. And he does it with so much space that I guess the people of Rome at the time, some of them can look at this as proof that he was the one who set the fire in order to, uh, to clear this, this territory. Yeah, no, no it's, uh, certainly there were suspicions. So Suetonius quotes a contemporary verse which was circulating um, about um, the, um, the Domus Rea, uh, which alluded to the aftermath of the, of the um, Gallic sack and the fire then when people had to head to Vey, the neighbouring city. And the, uh, the verse says, Rome is going to become one house. Head for Vei, Romans, unless that house consumes Vei as well. So the idea that it's just keep expanding, you know, we need to run. We had the Gauls before and now we've got Nero um, who's building um, his palace. Uh, so that provides us some sort of sense of the contemporary imagination. Mm. So those are the ancient sources. What do we what indications do we get when we look for people who are contemporary with Nero mm. writing about these events? Because we, we don't have any direct mm. lines of evidence, but we get hints and bits of pieces and people quoting other people, I think if that's the way to put it. That's that that's exactly right. Yeah. Um so um a lot of uh Neuronian uh literature or histories um are lost. So we have to rely on epigrams such as that was quoted by uh Suetonius. Um and also the fate um of a young senator, a young poet, um who we now know as Lucan, Marcus Aeneas Lucanus who in the August of 
1864, composed a poem entitled De Incendio Urbis, On the Burning of the City, which the emperor was so enraged at that he banned all readings of Lucan's poetry. So we think, based on that, it was negative and blamed uh, (laughs) Nero uh, for what was happening. It could just be really bad poetry. Oh, no, if you read Lucan, he's a good poet. (laughs) Sorry. We do have some other works surviving. Um, But but Nero uh, saw him as a poetic rival um, uh, there. Now, Tacitus quotes the last line of an officer in the Praetorian Guard, who the following year, in 65, was part of a conspiracy against Nero. And normally dialogue um, in histories is a bit suspicious, but Tacitus assures his readers that he provided them with the Praetorian officer's exact words, which suggests um, that um, they came down through oral tradition. Mm. So um, Tacitus says many other famous last words are widely known. These ones aren't. So the officer, Subrius Flavus, apparently told Nero to his face uh, when he was condemned, I began to hate you after you showed yourself to be a murderer of your mother and your wife, a charioteer, an actor, and an arsonist. So the Latin is incendiarius. So Antasta says that he's giving the exact words of, wow. of, of Flavus. Those are definite last words. <laughs> 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 Nero was not amused. Uh, <laughs> and not long after, uh, uh, to scooch it along just mm. a little bit, at uh, Nero's suicide, uh, the people of Rome are a little bit freer to talk about Mm. these kind of events. Mm. And uh, one of my uh, favourite accounts that we have slash don't have is... uh, We do have. We do have the Octavia. Yeah, we do have the Octavia. Yes. Tell us about the play. Yes. So there's a play called the Octavia, um, which is um, about uh, Nero's um, uh, wife, uh, the daughter of Claudius, and what happens to her. Um, and certainly then her exile and murder um, in AD 62. And as I said, she was a very popular figure. Uh, so the play is often attributed to Seneca, um, his tutor, um, but it seems not to have been written by him. But it was certainly um, written and performed um, in AD 68 or 69, not long after Nero's suicide. Now, the dramatic date of the play is 62, Octavia's last year, but it offers premonitions of Nero's future evils. And in the play, Nero is enraged at the people of Rome for their support of Octavia, and he can be heard wishing, and I quote, the city's buildings may soon fall under my flames. My flames uh, being uh, the the key, uh, key words there. So we think that the Octavia is a work of political commentary, um, and that certainly, you know, the theatre is something that everyone would go um, and watch and enjoy in ancient mm. Rome. So if this is being aired there, if people didn't know about this rumour before, they certainly did uh, when they saw the Octavia. Okay, um, so, so show of hands, who thinks that Nero set the fire of Rome? <laughs> Works well on a podcast. No hands <laughs> in the room. <laughs> so the impression that I get from this then is that... Uh, well, our uh, couple of thousand years later, everyone seems to think that Nero didn't set the fire of Rome. Mm. It, 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 did Rome think that Nero set the fire? 
the contemporary Romans? There are strong hints that it was discussed, that it was talked about. Um, again, which might seem implausible to us, but but rumours are are rooted um, in people's fears and preconceptions. Mm. So after the Great Fire of London um, in, um, in the reign of Charles II, there was a rumour that Charles II actually started the fire because his father, Charles I, had been beheaded. Um, and so this was his act of revenge uh, for that. Uh, so the idea that leaders might be responsible is not as um, implausible um, in the public imagination mm. as we might think. We can look at things dispassionately, and yes, I agree with everyone. I don't think Nero did it. You know, if we look at where it began, the edge of the, the Circus Maximus, you know, where fires began before, um, the flammability of, of, of Rome, um, you know, Nero could have just knocked down his his own house, the Domus Transitoria, to build the Domus Array. He didn't need a fire. Fire, uh, to do that yeah he'd find a way if he wanted to do it exactly yeah but if we look at what people were talking about at the time um the fact that nero the great showman uh wanted to do this does seem plausible and indeed people thought that he actually wanted to rename rome um into neuropolis um so what better way to do that than to burn down the city um and start anew Okay, uh, we might take a, a couple of questions if anybody has a, a question. Hey, Kellen. So just on the rumours, yes. thinking through the framework of who would benefit, mm. was there anyone that might have benefited from spreading those rumours and, and possibly seeking to disempower Nero? Yeah, I mean, certainly. So there was um, an opposition that was developing. Uh, so the, the next year, we hear about the Pisonian conspiracy led by a senator called uh, called Piso. Um, and Seneca, the younger, his estranged tutor, is implicated in this as well. Um, and so there was a, going to be an attempt um, to displace uh, uh, Nero with this senator, but also they were going to get um, another um, of... Um, Claudius's daughters, um, Antonia, and bring her to the Praetorian camp um, as a sign of, you know, the restoration of, of that kind of government. So that there was certainly a, a, an opposition um, that would, would benefit from Nero being discredited in, in this fashion. And there was a real active attempt the next year to remove him. All right. So how soon do we think the rumours that Nero did it emerge? Like, can we read from the um, fact that he took his time coming to Rome mm. to maybe guess that maybe the rumor was already circulating mm. as early as that point, a few days after the fire started, mm. and that's why Nero deliberately tried to, you know, come in late and make mm. it clear that oh, I wasn't actually here mm. until now. Mm. Could that be the case? Yeah, no. So uh, one thing that I, I try and do as a as a historian of of, of rumor is to try and say uh, what is plausible and uh, what we do know and 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 what we don't know. Um, and so, if we look at Tacitus and Dyer's account, I think the atmosphere of fear and panic that they create is very plausible, and it's that environment in which rumors um, emerge. It's the other part of my hat on, which then goes well. We have evidence from August of 64, we have 65, and then 68 and 69. So I can't definitely say we have evidence from that period, but I think it is plausible. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Kaylin Davenport 
head of the Centre for Classical Studies at the Australian National University. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any readily available podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on our social media channels such as Facebook or Twitter, where Kaylin is at Dr. C. Davenport. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.